Hey everybody, welcome back to another edition of Dental Practice Heroes Podcast, clinical edition with the guys from Colorado Surgical Institute, Dr. Daniel Brisky and Dr. Tahir Dune. What's happening, guys? What's up, really? Not much, man. Not much. I actually uh, just started dropping my kids off to school for the first time, so I got two kids in two oh. different schools and like dealing with the logistical issues of that. I know your kids are older than mine, so you've already been there, but it's just interesting to try to coordinate it all. It's a chaotic morning. So my daughter started sixth grade this year and she has to be up and going. Like we have to wake her up at 6 a.m. I'm not an early riser. I'm usually going to bed about 2 a.m. And I still haven't adjusted. We're four weeks into school and and people are like, shut up, bitch. Because like I literally, I wake up at six with them. I get them to school. They're off by like 7.20. And then I'll go back to bed for another like three like sometimes four hours. <laughs> Dude, but, you, you got a good schedule, man. Well, it was funny is like my wife does the same thing and I'm like, gosh, if, any, if people knew this, they'd just be like, what a bunch of sloth piece of shit. It's like, just get out of bed and do something, you know? But it's, this is our life. I'm going to, I'm going to spin this for you. It's like you work hard, you have a successful practice and then you can have a nap before 10 a.m. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Yeah. There you can have go, a nap. That's good. Yeah, absolutely, man. And I mean, all summer we had, we, me and my wife, we would sleep till like 1030 and people are like, how do your kids not wake you up? Because like, we tell them not to. <laughs> <laughs> you, you teach them how to make their own food and just to leave it alone. So you got to gotta train them like, your, like yeah. your team. This is going to be interesting segue into implant complications, but I feel yes. like we're, we're touching on some life lessons here for the listeners. Yeah. It's, it's not all about clinical guys. It's about parenting too. Yeah. So, so we're, we're talking about more complications and we wanted to get into in the last episode a few things about like, what do we do when there's a little bit of bone loss, more bone loss. So Brisky, what is your like, what is the gauge for here's what we're doing with this implant? It's losing bone. Yes. Okay. If you have more than 50% bone loss on implant, you should probably take the implant out at that point. So in the beginning portion, I'd say there's two, two good stages of the implant bone loss. First stage of periimplantitis is mucositis, which just basically just means like, tissues inflamed around the implant. That just means that you need to have better keeping track of the implant with periprobing and glycine powder, hygiene visits, and educating the patient in terms of what the proper home education should be. Then the second stage is actually where it reaches periimplantitis. That's when it has a five millimeter probing depth and it's bleeding, right? That's usually correlates with about two to three threads of the implant now have bone loss at that point. That's when you definitely need to start looking at what to do in terms of keeping this thing clean. If if it is bleeding, then hey, let's let's take care, right? Let's clean it up, glassing powder, send the patient home, good effective home maintenance, and then in another three months, like take another peek, probe it again. Is it bleeding again? Well, if it is bleeding again, it's only going to get worse, right? It's never going to get better than a five millimeter probe depth with bleeding, and if it's still there, it's always going to be there. So at that point, that's when you do need to consider open flap and actually cleaning out the threads of the implant and grafting it. So we can get into that if you want to. You have to say, what does that look like? I'm hoping the listeners were just like, oh, no, not going to do that. (laughs) Yeah, I just want to qualify one thing. You know, this is for healed, integrated implants later down the road. That's like we're done with surgical success. We put the prosthetic on, whether single unit or whatever. And now we're tracking this a year or two down the road. Also, we are seeing, and this is you know your own philosophy and your own practice, but if a patient has two implants, they're on hygiene four times a year. And so it helps build the hygiene program, helps get them involved in extra maintenance, and then it helps prevent 
what we're going to talk about, you know, on this next segment. But yeah, when it comes to pulling the implant and grafting versus removing of threads and grafting, Dr. Brisky has like really cool protocol. So at the stage now where you have a prime miller probing depth, it's bleeding and the bleeding is not getting better, right? Like what do you do? One good protocol that I would recommend, there's two different ideas. The two ideas are thread removal or not thread removal. I have a lot of people and multiple different surgeons out there that will recommend, you know, you where your crest of the bone is, and then you have implant threads that are above the bone, that you have to smooth all of that out. That is recommended on every protocol. But a lot of surgeons will differ in terms of what they do with the buccal and the lingual bone that is exposed, that is below the crest of the bone, but it still is exposed a little bit on the buccal and the lingual, if that makes any sense, right? Because anything above the crest of the bone, you have to smooth no matter what. But anything below that, you know, there could be a small defect buccal lingual that has some threads on it. Some people will polish that and some people won't. Do I know the correct answer? I don't know. I think that's more of like a feel thing. But the biggest thing is that we surgically have to intervene at this point. So what we're doing is you're most likely taking the crown off. After you take the crown off, you're going to raise a flap, buckle, lingual. You're going to see the entire thing. You can buy a Comet Drill Periumplatitis Kit is one, one recommendation. It's just rotaries that you use with copious amounts of irrigation to treat that bony defect. So what you do is you actually just polish all the threads of that implant. After you polish all the threads of the implant, you have to decontaminate the implant surface. So first you're going to use some glycine powder to spray the implant surface. So that way the implant is clean. After that, you're going to add tetracycline. And with the tetracycline, this is something you're going to have to get from your local pharmacy to compound it. Then you're going to treat the implant area for three minutes with the tetracycline. And then you're going to rinse it, and you're going to irrigate it you with either Paradex or Microsin. Microsin or hypochlorous acid, Stella Life, it's the same, same exact product. So rinse it with something like that. After that, you're going to graft it. If you can, use a bone scraper and open the side up a little bit bigger to get, grab some autogenous bone. That's going to be the best. And then otherwise, you're going to just use cortical cancellous graft, like an allograft. Inside the allograft, we like to combine metronidazole or gentamicin inside the graft as well to help with keep this thing infection-free. Then we're also going to use PRF for soft tissue healing. So how it goes is, all right, you flap it, you remove threads above the bone. You can decide if you want to remove the threads that are below the bone that are on the buccal and lingual. That's your decision. Then you're going to implant, you're going to decontaminate the implant with glycine, then tetracycline, rinse it with Paradex or Microsin. Now it's time to graft. Graft is going to be autogenous plus allograft or just allograft, right? Then we're going to put a membrane over the top of the implant. I'll usually just like cut a little hole in it if you want to. And then bone goes down. Then we're going to put pericardium. Pericardium is going to go over the top of the bone graft and then PRF over the top of that. And then you suture it closed. <laughs> now let's break that down a little bit because I know I just rattle off quite a few things there. Everyone's probably thinking, what is he talking about? Well, let me ask you one thing. Let me interrupt you for a second. So when we're doing this, we're talking about creating a stable situation with the infected bone around the implant. We're not trying to grow vertical bone back. We are trying to grow vertical bone back to the adjacent bone. Mm -hmm. So only go as high as the adjacent bone. 
but we can always get the bone back to where the adjacent bone is. And why pericardium instead of why do you choose that membrane? I'm just curious. It's a little bit longer lasting. And also I've found out that, you know, a lot of pericardiums will have a very good amount of drapeability to it. So it sticks around a little bit longer and it holds up a little bit better. Yeah, a couple things to to touch on on what Dr. Brisky was talking about. Just consider it this way. A, you need to mechanically debride the metal. Any of those like granulation tissue cells, any of that crap that's touching the titanium, bone won't grow against that titanium if there's soft tissue or any of those cells on the metal. So you got to mechanically debride it. Then you got to chemically debride it with tetracycline, glycine, whatever the case may be. When you're removing the threads, turn your water on or you're going to get a lot of sparks. And then sometimes if you have a lot of unhealthy tissue and you want to allow it to granulate in, you can remove the crown and put on like a healing abutment and get things clean and let some of that keratinized tissue help grow back in also before you do this next component that Dr. Brisky talked about. But what I'd recommend, because when I was listening to podcasts, And these clinical ones specifically, go back and just re-listen to it a couple of times while you're on your drive, because that way it kind of locks in the steps into your mind. It also has to do with if you think you can get primary closure. If you think you can get primary closure, you can use pericardium, right? If you don't think you can get primary closure at that point, you can still use a PTFE membrane, like a cytoplast TXT membrane. And if you do tend to use that, which I actually lean towards using something like that because at that point when you do take the membrane out at the four-week mark, you're going to have this beautiful amount of keratinized tissue that has grown underneath that membrane. So most people say, oh man, I got to get primary closure. You don't. (laughs) You don't necessarily have to. I would rather get more tissue than worrying about getting the primary closure. What if you can't get primary closure? What is the reason that you cannot use a pericardium without primary closure? I think it has to do with the dentist surgical experience, I think is the main thing. Most very, very well-seasoned dentists or, or surgeons can get primary closure with almost anything, right? But that doesn't necessarily mean that you have to. So in order to get primary closure, just to kind of pull on that thread, you know, you're going to have to lay a good envelope flap or lay some vertical releases, and then you're going to have to release the periosteum away from the tissue. Essentially, you're making an incision between the area in that um, keratinized and non-attached or mobile mucosa area and a small incision that's kind of going to separate the periosteum. And then there's all these little fibers you have to go through and pluck. I, kind of, I equate it to like while we're teaching, like, like strumming a guitar, like plucking the strings. And then the doc will take like the the 15 turn it horizontal or turn it like at a 45 90 degree angle and you can feel those fibers and as you pluck each one then the tissue will release and you'll get a vast amount of mobility on it as well but again you're trying to repair an implant you're trying to do x amount of miracles all at once so sometimes it's don't try to throw too many techniques at it at the same time if it's your first few all right, so you, you kind of talked about what we're going to do when we've, you know, we lost, you know, less than 50% of the bone. What about, you know, when we lost more than 50%, we're going to take it out? Are you guys truffing it? Like, what are, how are you doing that? It's actually, I love this topic and I love showing people how to take an implant out. It's actually way easier than you think it is. <laughs> mm-hmm. Most of the time. Most of the time. Most yeah. of the time. 
you can save, you know, that 10% of the really, really, really difficult ones, which I think someday we can help you all you guys learn which ones those are and save those for the specialist. But then you can do the other 90% <laughs> in your office. So first, when you're taking out an implant, you'd be surprised how many implants will just back out or just unscrew, like you're screwing a unscrewing a, a screw that's into the wall. Literally, it's the same exact thing. So first, what you want to do is you're going to want to just try to reverse the implant out with your, uh, you know, your plain standard torque driver. If it comes out, great, good job, <laughs> right? You unscrew the implant. <laughs> yeah. So actually, that's as easy as that. Sometimes now, if it doesn't come out, let me ask you this: What is the what Newton force are we talking about? Where it's like, okay, this isn't coming out. I mean, for the most part, you can apply almost up to I think it's 200 newton centimeters with a standard driver that's going to break the integration of the implant. And you're going to put a little bit of the hand pressure on it in the backwards direction, and it's literally going to just start unscrewing. It's kind of cool. But if it doesn't come out at that point, you stop, you take the driver off, and then you can use a trefine. Your options are a trefine, or you can use a very thin diamond needle burr. I tend to just use a trefine, and usually with our system that we use, which is Newdent, they have specific trefines that are extremely sharp. And for me, using a copious amount of irrigation and a pecking like motion up and down on there is way easier for me than sticking a needle burr down there that I'll probably break three or four of them. <laughs> All you have to do is you take the trefine and you're going to remove about three millimeters, and then you're going to go back and try to remove it again. That's what I like to do. So three millimeters of the trefine, take it out, then try to unscrew it. If it unscrews it, great. If it doesn't, then go back again. Then you may have to remove another three millimeters at that point, and then you'll see it just unscrew at that point. It's super easy to get frustrated with the trefine and not go up and down and like allow the water to cool the bone. But if you cook it and you barbecue that thing, and it's super easy to do that with the trefine, you can cause like some necrosis and a lot of post-operative pain. So make sure you're just taking your time, three millimeters. And then initially when you're trying to back it out, don't try to muscle it too hard because you don't want to strip the internal components of the implant. Because after you do your trefine, you want to leave the door open to back the sucker out again. And you don't want the internal components stripped. Because mm -hmm. then you got to pivot into like your salving kit. And then, you know, engage that little screw that goes in there and use an implant removal kit and all of that fun stuff. Yeah, I'd say a good rule of thumb would be you can leave about 20% of the bone around the implant and the implant will always come out. So you don't ever need to remove 100% bone or 90% bone. I would always only remove up to 80% of bone and the implant will always unscrew at that point. Have you guys ever stripped the internal component? Yes. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so, I, so many times I'm speaking from experience, right? I've barbecued the bone. I've broken components. <laughs> I've broken screws. I've locked in multi-units. Like, dude, we've done almost every single thing. And then that's why we, we speak from experience. It's like, dude, don't do what we did. We're telling you what not to do now. You actually can. Like, literally, we've done this so many times where you have an implant site. And if you can be gentle and not burn the bone, and take an implant out smoothly, and then put an implant right back in the same hole. You can, you really can. It's actually not that difficult. But where the problem comes is we, as dentists, inherently, uh, I feel like sometimes we get impatient, <laughs> right? I'm not a very patient person, so this topic was very hard for me to learn because I just want to get the freaking implant out, like yesterday. But if you are gentle and you remove 
the implant using the trephine and very clean, use a very sharp trephine, a new one. I like to use a new one every time because new dental usually just kind of gives some to us every once in a while. If you ask very nicely to your rep, they give a lot of free product away. So use that clean, lots of irrigation and your implant will just come out. But good question with June. June just was talking about, or actually Paul, you just said, what if the implant breaks or flowers or something like that? At that point, you have to pivot to using an implant fixture removal tool, which is just a, it's a reverse threading point that goes very deep into the connection and it's going to engage the inside of the implant connection in a reverse motion. And once it engages the implant, it'll just keep going reverse and your implant will just come out with the tool intact. Okay. And then worst case scenario, and I've only had to do this once, but you flower it, implant removal tool doesn't work. Just trephine enough where you can get like an ash forceps, like a beaked type of thing on the lingual and remove a little bit of buckle bone, maybe down to like 50% and you crack the thing through the buckle and it'll come out. So that's like, you, you've already started, you have no way out, you got to finish the procedure, and then you're like, okay, I'm going to just graft and regrow this, and this should not ever be the scenario once listening to this podcast, but if you get stuck, you can just remove buckle bone and crack it buckly, and it's what almost like- What is the sorcery you speak of? <laughs> it's not a fun one. <laughs> because with implant fixture removal tools, the tool itself is usually like a standard size, like a normal platform. But it's important to stock the wide platform in in the normal platform one. I remember this case that I had like six months ago where this woman had like six implants to remove on the top. And I thought it was a specific connection. I, I asked the dentist and it was a dentist in Mexico who placed all the implants like five years ago and all of them I had to remove. And he told me the wrong implant. <laughs> so I had like the driver that I ordered. I'm like, oh great, the driver didn't freaking fit the thing. And then I didn't have... I had one wide platform fixture removal tool and that one broke during taking out all six of them. So I didn't have any fixture removal tools. <laughs> so at that point I used a trephine and exactly what Dr. Dune said, I actually put like an ash forcep on it and I wiggled that thing. And her, you know, her, her head was moving like back and forth while she was sleeping like, pretty aggressively. I think she might've had a little bit of a sore neck when she woke up. <laughs> that implant yeah. definitely came okay. out. And so there's <laughs> actual data on this. The amount of times you're going to make mistakes is the most in your first like 50 to 100 implants. And then from 100 to 500, you are like on point. You're doing all the steps. You're not forgetting. You're not cutting corners. And then you hit over 500 and then you get this ego and then you start to cut a few corners, do your cases faster, and your complication rate goes back up, and then you re-humble yourself. So again, mm -hmm. you know, we speak from experience. Yeah. I feel like I'm at that phase now. That's my phase currently. And it's with any procedure. It's with any procedure. So again, and then you'll hit like a thousand, you re-humble yourself, or however quick that, you know, learning curve is on that end. So I mean, I think that covers implants and and ways to kind of handle them and remove them and graft them and come back in. But we didn't touch on a few things. Like, let's say it's an incision line opening on a full arch case, right? Suturing tissue that has already been sutured like a week ago is very hard to get that thing closed. And me and Brisky, especially after some of our courses, because we have, you know, 16 to 18 arches to manage after one weekend, and then that obviously will build up over time, we've closed a lot of these cases. And sometimes it's it's the patient. And the vast majority of the time, it's the patient's home care that leads to incision line opening. 
So Brisky, I mean, you speak from experience. How would you recommend people handle small and large incision line opening cases? Yeah, of course. So now that we've done, man, we've done like seven courses now for all on X courses. I feel like we're getting like really good at spotting what are the very common errors that people are doing during their all nexus. And yes, it can be the patient, but more often it's actually the doctor suturing the arch. For the most part, the suturing is like too loose. There's not enough suturing. I don't think there can really ever be enough suturing for these things. Usually we would do a Texas two-step like uh, suture. I think we've talked about it before in a podcast, which is basically just the combination of horizontal mattress and simple continuous suture, and it's just one suture. So we'll do one on the right side, one on the left side. Then we close them up and send them off. But now I've actually learned, we also do that, but now I add three simple interrupted sutures. I add one simple one in the front, one in the premolar area, and one in the posterior area. And since we just did that small little thing, we now have drastically number of decreased amount of incision line openings. So when you do have incision line opening, most of the time, it's actually not a big deal because the prosthetic is over the top of it and it's covering it. And what's going to grow between the incision of keratinized tissue and keratinized tissue is keratinized tissue. So you're just going to get more tissue. So that's not a bad problem. But when you have an incision line opening and the tissue is moving back and forth, right? Let's picture like a mandible and you're looking in there and you can see the flap of tissue just moving back and forth. <laughs> that's when you need to suture that thing back together. It's okay for the suturing to be a little bit loose and tissue will grow between it. But when it's open and it's literally immobile, you do have to take the prosthetic off and you do have to close it again. Anything you want to add to that, Tahir? You know, if it's open enough and you have the ability to do like PRP in your guys' practices, I would try to get a couple of layers of PRP in there and then close it up over the top. Because the secondary contraction of this like really friable, you know, nasty tissue that you're trying to re-suture, it's going to pull a little bit, open a little bit, and you want some of those areas closed up, and it's going to aid in like soft tissue growth. So that's the only thing I would add. Sometimes you can re-flap, and this is like Hail Mary stuff. You know, you've already tried to close it once. It's reopened again. You got to close it up again because you can't leave the bone exposed for too long or that whole like, you know, buckle plate will get necrotic. So then at that point, you flap it. You got to basically do the uh, periosteal release, really get that thing mobile where you can almost like wrap in their tongue into it if you need to and re-suture them up really aggressively. But again, in that scenario, maybe call us or text us. If that happens, it's few and far between and those are the ones that will make you sweat. Mm -hmm. I used to make this mistake where there'd be an incision line opening and you think, oh man, there's a little bit of bone graft that's missing. So then I would open the whole thing back up and then I would bone graft and I would place a membrane of PRF, but there's no room for those items anymore because the tissue has already shrank. So you're going back in there and you're trying to like forcefully put bone graft material and all these extra materials that aren't really going to close. So the goal should be closing it, not like stuffing more bone and stuff in there, right? PRF is a great idea to lay down, but bone and all those membranes and stuff, there's usually not room for it. So just try to get the case closed so there's no implant failure. Awesome. Great information, guys. Where can they find out more about the courses and what are you guys offering as far as uh, they can text a number? Yeah. So, I mean, you can definitely check us out on social. It's Colorado Surgical Institute or look us up at www.coloradosurgicalinstitute.com. If you text HERO to 970 
646-746-7766. We got an awesome hookup for all the listeners for Paul's podcast. So again, text HERO to 970-546-7766. We have our full arch course where we use all the photogametry, all the 3D printers and mills, and we do laterals and block wraps all in one weekend. And we're usually doing like 16 to 18 arches in a weekend. And then we have a separate course where it's predominantly single implants and vertical sinuses, grafting, immediate implants, and a bunch of wisdom teeth. Like, man, we are doing a huge service for people in the community because we are doing so many wisdom teeth on these weekends. So reach out to us. We're here to help. We're here to kind of demystify some of the things that might otherwise seem scary. Awesome. Thanks so much, guys. And we'll talk to you next time. Thanks, Paul. Thanks, Paul. Hey everybody, this is Dr. Doom from Colorado Surgical Institute. Just wanted to give you guys a shout out and let you know about the program. We have full arch surgeries, we have lateral sinus lifts, we have block grafting courses, all done in one weekend with the whole digital workflow with photogametry units, scanners, 3D printers, milling, you name it, anything regarded to full arch, we cover in depth. We also have a PGCA course. What that is, it's the Postgraduate Clinical Accelerator course where we are going to be covering wisdom teeth, single implants, and it can be complex single implants with vertical sinus lifts. We'll also be covering full arch extractions with ridge reduction, bone grafting, PRP, suturing, and we also will have a course on socket preservation. So if you guys are interested in any of those courses, please reach out to us at Colorado Surgical Institute. The code is HERO10 for 10% off our courses because we love Paul Etchison and his podcast, and we're here to help.